Good morning, everyone. This morning's session, we're going to uh, explore the topic of Nibbana and some topics around or connected to Nibbana. One way into this conversation and this exploration was given by one of your fellow students in big, below, bold letters uh, outside on one of the whiteboards. The goal in Theravadan Buddhism to attain Nibbana and therefore Arhantship seem, seemingly poses a quandary. It smacks of striving, achieving, attaining as something to become a self. The idea of staying steady on the path with an intention or aim of Nibbana that leads to the role of a bodhisattva seems more palatable and in alignment with selflessness or selfless service and compassion for humanity. How does a practitioner remedy or choose? What I'd like to do with the, the first part of this morning <clears throat> is uh, bring us much closer to Nibbana, or bring Nibbana much closer to us. And, and, not, and hopefully have it not be such a foreign ideal, such a far away ideal. One of the problems is that we're beings um, stuck in the view that's stuck within uh, dependent origination it's one of the things from this Buddhist lens that we all have. And <clears throat> most beings wandering through samsara actually have some, are somewhere navigating this view, even if you're in high uh, deva realms or in animal realms. Dependent origination is the, is the scheme of why we keep wandering. So within that framing of dependent origination, we tend to futurize a self that we want to become or we don't want to become. It's sort of embedded in that model. It's embedded in our view to think in terms of motivation, desire, or fear, um, in terms of a timeline of self. And so if we talk about uh, complete awakening, our hunship, or these profound um, experiences of Nibbana, it's very easy for us to hear that and then put it through our conditioning, put it through our, our, uh, the way we're relating conventionally to life and to self. And then I, and I can put these things very far away and then you can either feel defeated because they're so far away or the only way you can imagine making up the difference is to strive and to frame it as I need to become that and the effort required to become what I'm conceiving seems really daunting. But that's, the, that's, that's us in a conventional view of self. So I definitely had that, and I have less of it. Um, and I had that view uh, when I started, first started getting very passionate about the Dharma, seeing the difference it could make and giving more of my life to it. And I probably wouldn't have gotten on a plane to Burma um, and ordained for stress reduction or uh, to have a little more presence for the beautiful sunsets that I knew I could have a little more connection to. There was a drive, um, both for the glory that I imagined was coming my way <laughs> and the fear of not actually making a difference in my own mind stream because my own mind stream was not um, was a tormented one at times. And I was like, boy, this thing can get quite um, painful, quite ugly inside. And then I see that Dharma practice can make a difference. And so the, the launching into practice, the commitment to practice was a good thing. And yet it was still a conventional view. And I couldn't help but frame that passion conventionally. I, I want to become free. And so I was much more dominated by 
these visions of possibility and then wanting to become them. So I dependently arose upon a plane (laughs) and I dependently entered a monastery and I dependently shaved my head and put on robes and suffered with independent origination, measuring myself, achieving, thinking I was getting closer, what were the signs I was getting closer, and then feeling like I was very far away and I didn't deserve it. And so I was stressing and straining on the path because the path was still being um, uh, digested and viewed and filtered and, and um, understood through these conventional views of becoming and I couldn't imagine getting out of bed without it becoming wanting to go to the bathroom or becoming needing to get out of bed you know, at that time. And so this topic of, uh, last night, uh, Sally's topic of these stages, these four stages of awakening, and then this topic of Nibbana can stress us out if we're in that dependent origination view of it being, of, I don't even know what it is, but the more you describe it, it, found, it sounds further away. And so either I give up because I can't imagine making that journey, or I have to kind of give everything I got and dismantle my life and surge forward to span the gap between me and what I'm imagining is a stream entry moment or connecting to Nibbana. As we, as we're willing to practice motivated by just wanting to love people in our lives better or stress reduction or motivated by these ideals and feeling the possibility of greater capacities of heart and mind, along the way dependent origination gets weaker and our being dominated by self and this Um, the storyline that we feel imprisoned within that we're trying to work out, it gets lighter, it gets lighter. And from that, we're not as bound by it. Into the past some, you can actually see what is happening. When I was younger, I couldn't see what was happening. I could only kind of take my best guess at it. And then my best guess at it was still, had that conventional view of becoming, very dominated by becoming. As I practiced, I didn't know, I started thinking, well, I don't know about way down the road. I don't really know about Nibbana. I don't know about being an Arhant. Um, but being is becoming more accessible. Resting is becoming more accessible. Um, there's a fullness of heart. There's a fullness of patience. My connections to other people are being sweeter. I'm not as tormented inside. So I don't know about these ultimate things but there's a being space that's quite beautiful and that's validating enough. I'll keep going just to have more of that. And it turns out <clears throat> that, actually is the, that actually is the taste and the flavor of a free heart and mind. Whatever I was conceiving of Nibbana or conceiving of our hardship, I was actually growing closer to it all along and didn't know it because I was conceiving of something else. So going to Sally's topic last night and hearing about these fetters that get uprooted, um, those may actually be distinct experiences that will happen for you if you keep practicing. But you don't have, it's not helpful to obsess about them or to strain for them. They tend to get uprooted by the very practices we do just by settling the mind, settling the heart, becoming more comfortable doing that in more circumstances, talking yourself down from being really enraged or fearful or really caught up in a self-drama, learning the appropriate way of calming that to something more functional. That's actually the work. That's actually the direction of what being an arhant is finally like, as best I can guess. And it's also... uh, the mind stream that's less fraught, that's less caught by greed, hated delusion, that's less tormented, uh, less haggard, that mind stream 
is very close to Nibbana. And so there are, there are times that <clears throat> all the way through practice, I was actually sitting right next to Nibbana, um, very close to it, because I was in a stream of heart and mind that were momentarily free, agreed, hatred, delusion. And then agreed, hatred, delusion would roll in and I'd get further from uh, Nibbana. Um, and as I got further from it, I would also get more entangled in dependent origination and get more stressed and strained and futurize my happiness or uh, imagine my stress you know, lasting for a long time. Then I learned to relax myself out of that, become closer to the stream of present experiences resting within it. And that's actually your... Because Nibbana doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an ending, and it's not a location, it's not somewhere else, it means that you have already been um, sitting right next to Nibbana all along. It's right actually here. But it's not here as a smell, a taste, a sound, a sight, a body sensation. It's not a stream of mental content. It's a phenomena that we can have consciously, we can have this conscious experience. But right next to it, not having a direct experience of Nibbana, but the neighborhood around it is equanimous, it's present. The more uh, deeply the experience you're having is one of non-grasping, uh, intimacy, balance, non-grasping. That's the neighborhood around Nibbana. That tends to be where people then drop in to have a more profound experience, a direct experience of Nibbana. And when they emerge from that direct experience, they go back into this neighborhood around Nibbana, feeling balanced, having perspective, not being dominated by self-drama, self-glory or self-fear. So rather than futurizing it as something way down the road, which actually isn't helpful, it's a dependently arisen stress um, to do that. What I'd like to do is just guide us up, um, into a period of meditation practice. And if you can sort of not geek out too much, like, oh, Nibbana, Nibbana, where is it? I'm, I'm gonna look for it, because it's so, it's right here, it's right here. That's still too much preoccupation. That's still too much striving and picking around. Um, no one has ever actually connected to Nibbana by uh, encouraging those thoughts. But anytime that we are practicing in a way where we are cooling off our inner inflammation of anger or fear, greed, and there are healthy ways, there are many ways to do that. So one is to actually talk yourself down from your anger, your fear, your obsessions. And that actually gets you close to the neighborhood of Nibbana. Or if that stream of emotion and mentality um, won't calm down, then breathing with it and not struggling over it. And these are really the two tastes of mindfulness. Mindfulness that has skillful interve interventions, knowing anger and talking yourself out of it, guiding yourself down from an inflamed, angry state, fearful state, greedy state. Or if it won't be talked down, then being mindful within it while that stream is happening. So you all have been doing this. This is really your practice. What you may not have, um, what may not have occurred to you is that in those moments when you are resting uh, in the stream of experience, no matter what the stream of experience, you're in the neighborhood of Nibbana. Um, and it's, that's why it's not that far away. That's why it's not to conceive of it as 30 years after ordination, living in a cave and giving up everything I care about, then maybe, maybe not, this thing will happen. Um, 
why that, that, that mindset is common but not helpful is that it's not about 30 years down the road, it's just ever more resting intimately in the stream of present experiences and, it, and growing our capacity to stay intimate without reactivity of wanting, obsessing, pushing away, fear, envy, um, or a type of um, deluded or confused relationship to the stream of experience, perceiving it incorrectly. So the more we perceive what's happening correctly, the more the forces of greed and hatred have subsided, the more we're intimate with our experience, but it's not um, colored by uh, craving and clinging. That's the neighborhood of Nibbana. And it's as that deepens, the threshold between that experience and a more concrete, tangible experience of Nibbana, that uh, threshold is thinning. And what we don't know is when that thins so much that we actually then get to have um, a stream of experience where we are connected to Nibbana. It's, it's very clear, it's uh, validating, it has qualities. We can talk about that Nibbana experience. But what's important about Nibbana is less about Nibbana, it's more about um, our relationship, our growing towards it, maybe or maybe not having an experience of it, but almost everybody eventually emerges out of that experience back into the neighborhood of Nibbana. So that's how I want to frame it this morning. I would like there to be some room for discussion and clarification and um, there's some interesting things to talk about. Um, and this morning I thought we would also have practice so that we didn't talk about Nibbana and in talking about Nibbana moved out of the neighborhood of Nibbana into a lot of conception and a lot of confusion and how could this be true and I heard this but then they said that. Um, sometimes those questions do clarify the neighborhood and they kind of help you get oriented towards a stream of non-clinging, a stream of intimacy without reactivity. So that does help you kind of find the address, the, the GPS towards non-clinging, the GPS of freedom, the GPS of Nibbana. But sometimes you can get into a type of questioning and struggle um, around the very topic of Nibbana and that very mode of approaching it actually um, uh, drives you away from the experience. And so your questioning mind is more and more confused and agitated by the topic rather than uh, being drawn towards non-clinging, towards freedom. So that's why I wanted to have us do um, a lot of practice this morning together, quiet practice, and then some conversations, um, and then we'll do more practice. So that's how the morning will go. So I'd like us to sit together um, for a half hour. And if you want to stand up for a second to relieve your body, bring some ease.
So as we begin to sit, as our community members drift back into the room, I want to point us towards the, the attitude to which we practice. Practice is uh, hopefully not driven by, um, not dominated by an urge or an energy within that this practice should become something. Let the practice be uh, free of the burden of having to produce something. A big change for me in my practice is when I shift my attitude from the image I had when I was with Saida Upandita, I felt like I was on a rowboat on a big river and I was straining to row downstream, trying to get somewhere. And as I began to work with Pauk Saida and the nuns and the monks there, the advice I got, I felt like I finally relaxed my relationship to the oars. And at times even folded the oars into the boat. And learned to rest in a boat that was being carried by the river. So an attitude of non-striving non-accomplishment. One that can humbly and steadily rest in the flow of current experiences. Sometimes the conditions are right where that's easy. The minds calm, the bodies at peace. Sometimes it's difficult. You go to sit down and rest like a boat floating downstream, but the body is in pain, the mind is stimulated, activated, the heart's in a struggle. So we do those two parts. One part, gently inviting ourselves to be more relaxed, to put down burdens. Every time out of habit, we get busy. We relax out of that habit. We relax intimately in the flow of present time experiences. The second part of the image that worked for me at least was to sit on a boat flowing down a river. And my job was actually to sit up and appreciate the ride. Not to row anywhere, but to sit up within the boat and appreciate the landscape. appreciate the weather, see if I could be both relaxed and aware, not straining my awareness. But as aware as I naturally could be while remaining relaxed.
And by gentle invitation, to what degree could you relax a little more and invite a little more appreciation? Nothing that would cause stress or strain, but just with gentle, careful invitation. Would an attitude of acceptance be helpful if there is something where there is struggle? Or welcoming some compassion if there is something painful? Maybe patience. Whatever helps you rest in this stream of experience, but rest wakefully. In any moments of calm, present equanimity, especially if it's humble, without a big drama of self story, and the mind and the attention are simple, content, 
in relationship to whatever is happening. This is a mind not aggravated by clinging, at least in the moment. It's a mind tasting the peace of the third noble truth. It's a mind and a heart in the neighborhood of Nibbana. If you're in the more floaty side of the equation, you might sit up just a little bit and see if you can appreciate what you're experiencing. Just lightly. Relaxed and aware. If being aware of things has drawn you into wanting and not wanting and complexity, see if you can sit back just a little, relax the heart, the mind and the body.
in those moments when you are relaxed, aware, without struggle, in those moments you're in the neighborhood, you're in the neighborhood of Nibbana. You might notice if there are tones of the mind being content, mind being steady, mind being quiet. These may not dominate your experience, but they might be a part of what you're experiencing. A little more calm, a little more quiet. Not quite as agitated.
And in those moments, Nibbana is not far away. Nibbana is never far away, never actually far away. But in moments of relaxed, calm awareness, peaceful within the flow of changing experiences, right in the middle of daily life. Nibbana is not so far. like to hear from a few of you what that experience was for you. And just to put out, um, there are many reasons why that might not have been a very accessible meditation for you. 
you might have come in with something very stimulating happening. And so the 